Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Producer Molly Stevens, and here on the Leaders Table podcast, it's our job to dissect leaders in policy and education, to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success to empower you. This episode, we're joined by Superintendent of the San Antonio Independent School District, Pedro Martinez, who's the kind of leader who wakes up every morning and asks himself, How do I continue to build trust today? If only I were that kind of morning person. This episode is stacked with tips from Pedro's career leading first Chicago's education system along with Arnie Duncan, turning education around in Nevada, and now in a community ready for change in one of the fastest growing districts in the country. Take note of Pedro's advice for strengthening your systems building muscles, how to balance quick wins with long-term planning, and more. We're getting to the end of season one of the Leaders Table podcast, so continue to listen to our last few interviews and then tune in over the summer for some special edition episodes. As always, we'd love to hear your ideas and your asks for season two, so email us anytime at leaderstable at educationalequity.org. And now here's Pedro Martinez at the Leaders Table. Pedro Martinez, thanks for joining the Leaders' Table. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So we're excited to talk with you for a number of reasons um, and look forward to uh, to learning from your leadership uh, as a relatively new superintendent of the San Antonio Independent School District with 44,000 school uh, students and over 86 uh, schools in your portfolio. Thank you. Thank you. Actually, we are now at uh, just over 52,000 and about 90 campuses. And we're about to open up um, several new programs next fall. So my hope is that we're going to be on a path of growth going forward. Excited to learn uh, about your vision for for growth and what you are learning in your in your your relatively early days in the role and what you see ahead. Now I know before being uh, beco- before becoming superintendent in San Antonio, uh, you were a superintendent in residence for the Nevada Department of Education, uh, and before that you were also superintendent for a sixty four thousand school district at Washoe County in Reno, Nevada. That's right. That's right. So when in in thinking about this interview, we looked um, looked a bit at San Antonio Independent School District's website. The school's mission, the 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 district's mission, is to transform SA, SAISD into a national model urban district where every child graduates and is educated. So either he or she is prepared to be a contributing member of the community. I'd like to start there and ask how you are leading 
the the schools and the kids and the teachers in your district toward that mission? No, absolutely, um, and and it's a it's a it's a mission and a vision that's been in our district that I embraced when I came on about a year and a half. Um, what's special about our district is that over ninety three percent of our children live in poverty. Uh, the median income of our families is about thirty thousand uh, dollars, and we are also in the most segregated city in the country when it comes to income. And I see it really play out in my and in our neighborhoods. Um, the poverty that I have in our district is very dense um, and is very ingrained. It's multi-generation. And so for us, those are the challenges that we have, but we also see those as the opportunities. Um, we're trying to learn more about our families. Um, I really have spent a lot of time, especially in my first year, learning the history of the city, how it became, how you know how it is now. Uh, we have two larger suburban districts that are north of us. And over the last 30 to 40 years, um, this is one of the fastest growing cities in the country, but it also, a lot of the growth has been uneven, and it's been sort of in one part of the city. And so for me, just understanding that has been one of the first steps, um, setting very aggressive goals and a clear vision and a clear um, a clear way of how we're going to be held accountable was also another priority. So we, we laid out 10 aggressive goals. Um, Two, our two uh, core goals are uh, ensuring that at least 90% of our children are graduating by the year 2020, and at least 80% of those students are going to college with at least 10% going to top tier one universities. Mm-hmm. Those two goals are driving our work, and then there's eight other goals that I consider those goals are goals that build up the armor for our children. So, for example, last year, in my first year, we had over 82% of our children graduating. We increased um, college-going rates from 50 to 70% and more than doubled the number of students going into top tier one universities. And we're very proud of that, but the question now that I'm asking is, is there armor built up? So we have a student that right now is attending Yale. So is that student going to be successful at Yale? Do we prepare her enough? Uh, because uh, many of our children, they live in very high poverty neighborhoods. They've never left their neighborhoods before. And if you've ever been to Yale or another campus similar to Yale, it's just a different world. And so really that's what, you know, we're having these conversations, understanding our families and, and really using our goals to drive our work. And does that include, does that extend to your thinking about the way ISD engages with higher education institutions right in Texas as well? Absolutely. So one of the things that we have done as part of our approach is we have built several partnerships uh, pretty, you know, with every one of our colleges here in San Antonio. So I'm blessed the fact that we have uh, a very large community college system called the Alamo College System. And there's partnerships we have, for example, we have three early college programs. And these are children that start in freshman year, and they're enrolled both in high school and in the community college, and they're graduating uh, with this, the goal is to graduate them with associate's degrees in four years. Mm-hmm. So in one of our schools, Travis, um, Travis High School, 84% of their students graduated last year with an associate's degree, not just a high school diploma, and all of them going on to four-year, uh, four-year tracks. What's interesting is that the other 16%, the, the college president is so passionate about the program that he actually invited those students to finish up their associate's during the summer for free. So we're setting up these type of partnerships. We also have, uh, so we have partnerships for dual credit. We also have partnerships where we're building lab schools. We have Trinity University who's in our community. We just opened up a brand new school called the Advanced Learning Academy 
We're Trinity University. Um, we have 10 residents uh, that are getting their master's degree at Trinity, but Trinity has professors uh, at the campus and this school has very customized curriculum. Um, it's, it's a very different type of school. It's very popular with our families. Just in its first year alone, we're seeing waiting lists for the school. So we're partnering and doing lab schools. Uh, we're going to be uh, t- we're talking to Texas A&M San Antonio to do a lab school. We're doing talking to uh, University of Texas in San Antonio to do a lab school. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing is we're taking the best of our higher ed institutions and figuring out ways of how we can benefit our children before they finish high school, as well as helping us build up our talent pipeline and helping our teachers. It sounds like you're you're leading innovation, leading change in a very old district. What have you learned about? about driving change in a school district from your seat as its leader in, in your first year and a half? So I think the first, the first you know, lesson I've learned, and this has been you know, now the third, you know, just the third state that I've been in. I grew up in Chicago, uh, worked in the Chicago Public Schools with our former secretary, Arnie Duncan, from 03 to 09. And really, you know, when I left in Nevada, and I was in Nevada for five years, and it was a great experience, and now brand new here in Texas and here in San Antonio, one of the things that I learned is that you have to really come in with an open mind. Uh, you can't, even though you can look at data points, you can look at where a district is at, you need to understand the context of of what uh, of those results. And so I spent a, a lot of time in my first year just understanding, again, the history of our district, understanding some of the traditions, uh, good and bad. Um, I really wanted to really push the question of what are expectations for our children? Um, what is the culture of our, not only of our district, but our community? And for me, um, learning that really has helped us to shape our strategies. And what we're doing now is we're having this conversation at a, at a community level talking about where we're trying to aspire. And so one of the things that I feel very blessed is that we have such significant community support. So I'll just give you one example. One of the things that I realized very quickly, because we have such a a high density of poverty, we just didn't have the resources to be able to support our children, I mean, and to support our teachers. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to go for two ballot questions at last November's election, both tax increases, and we got both of them passed with over a 70% approval rating. And this was in my first year. And it, and what I learned is that again, the community wants us to succeed. They were waiting for, for you know, for for a strong set of leaders to come in and and, and just really implement innovation, implement reforms. I have a very supportive board who's very connected to their community. So you know, everything is just right now. The timing is everything. I think the community was ready for change, and I just happen to be blessed to be the person that you know has been able to to be here for it. And it's, and it's very early. I mean, we're still in the beginning stages, but I, but I would say, you know, one of the biggest lessons is understand the community, leverage the community as much as possible. Uh, don't underestimate how much a community wants you to succeed, especially if you've been a low-performing district for many, many years. Mm-hmm. What do you think the, the American education community understands the least about Latino families and serving them in, in the K-12 environment? So, so you know, it's, it's a great question. In our district, um, it's interesting. So we are 97% Latino and African-American, 91% Latino. Mm-hmm. And like I said, over 93% poverty. So I think one of the challenges that I see is that, uh, and then this is also a southern state, which also for me, you know, being in the southern part of the country also has nuances as well. And there's a lot of history here. And so one of the things that I think that are um, that we always have to understand is, is when you have children who um, have lived in poverty, 
children of color especially and and let's you know let's really you know you know be honest about about you know what our history in our country right it's only been 30 or 40 years since the civil rights movements and and some would argue we still have a lot of those same fights that are, that you know we're having them today except they just look a little different mm-hmm. and so having an appreciation for that and then asking as educators we have to ask ourselves if traditional strategies are not working then how do you approach the problem so for example when you have a child who, you know, lives in a in a one bedroom apartment and maybe is the oldest of you know of three or four siblings, single parent family, um, and you know, and and that child feels the responsibility to help their family, and we're loading that child up with homework and they don't have any privacy in school in, in their apartment or they don't have access to the internet, um, you know, if we don't adjust the way we do our work. Uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna be supporting these children enough so that they can be successful. So, thinking rethinking things like the school day, rethinking uh, rethinking things about how we do homework, uh, the kind of support systems we put in place before school, uh, on weekends. How do we start engaging parents in a different way? Uh, many of our Latino parents and really high poverty parents, frankly, are intimidated by schools. Uh, you know, usually the only time they get called is when the children are doing something bad. And so, you know, they, they, you know there's this power play that exists. Um, you know, most of my, many of my families uh, work minimum, you know, wage jobs. And so they're barely making ends meet. And so there's a power play even with our teachers around education and, and the income levels. And so, so we're having these conversations now, but let's understand our families. Let's understand why some of our traditional approaches are not working and let's adjust. Let's customize. Um, and at the same time, you know, grounded in good uh, research-based strategies, grounded in high expectations, uh, grounded in getting to know these families and these children and showing them that we care. Because I think when you show somebody that you care, it's amazing what children will do for you. I'm, uh, uh, I'm from New York City. I grew up in, in Brooklyn and went to New York City public schools. And um, one of the things that I've, I've come to appreciate about, about Texas is I've gotten to know the, the broader Latino community, right, outside of our Caribbean-centric uh, community in New York. Is this the, the reality that Texas has had Latino mayors and Latino leaders going back to the 1800s. And I wonder how that influences or that, that uh, affects the culture or, or the ability for, for young Latino children growing up in San Antonio to see themselves as a part of a broader community. Is the conversation there more about the barriers of class or, is it, uh, or, or are, do our thoughts about ethnic barriers or, or the, the realities of race um, change when we look, uh, look at Texas? You know, it's a great question. So here's what I find fascinating about San Antonio. It is, um, in my district, it's one of the most homogeneous communities that I've ever had a chance to work in. And I grew up, you know, in a Latino community in Chicago. Grew into, a, you know, a high school that was over 90% Latino. But when you have a city that where the majority are Latino, it, it does have a, a fascinating dynamic. And what I'm seeing, which is, and I would say, I would say I'm seeing this across the entire state of Texas, is you have almost two different states. So you have the state that is very well educated. Mm-hmm. By the way, still majority of those individuals are white. Um, and you have some Latinos, and, and you see, you know, great, you know, successful individuals. You know, we have, for example, the Castro brothers, who we're very proud of here from the city of San Antonio, uh, went to Harvard, went to Stanford. I mean, just, you know, amazing education. You know, both graduated from one of my high schools, Jefferson High School. 
But at the same time, I see a large number of Latinos here in the state, and I would say also African-American uh, individuals who have been undereducated, that, you know, for various reasons, either didn't have access to quality education, um, and it's been accepted. And so, so it's interesting to me, you know, and, and, and you do see class issues because you do see individuals who are making it. And by the way, they leave these, you know, these high poverty neighborhoods and they move to nicer areas. And so they leave those neighborhoods. Those neighborhoods don't change. They stay poor. And so it's an interesting dynamic that I'm still trying to fully appreciate. But I will say this, you know, what I love about our district in San Antonio in Chicago and in Nevada, we always had a struggle of attracting diverse talent to the district. Always a struggle. Um, here, I'm not having that struggle. Um, over 70% of my teachers are Latino. Uh, over, you know, we have a nice, diverse set of employees, especially at the professional level, with our principals and our teachers. Um, and I'm seeing, you know, you know, San Antonio seems to be a magnet for diverse talent, which I love. Um, and that was a challenge we had in Chicago. That was a challenge we had in Nevada. How to attract diverse talent into the district? So I think that is one of the big benefits of San Antonio that I think it's seen as a city that welcomes that. Um, and that's an intangible that I can't put a price on. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, community engagement earlier and um, how important it is and um, how you've seen the community embrace the future success, the vision that you've, you've laid out for San Antonio ISD, and, and it's thinking about it, schools in general. Are there things that you uh, have learned to do that you've seen be successful or, or things that you, that you wish you had started to do earlier to engage the community and, and wrap the, the broader, uh, your broader stakeholders around your vision? Sure. So, so, you know, when I was in Chicago and I was working with, with Arnie Duncan, you know, I think we went into those trials back in 2002, 2003, that we just knew we were going to have a fight. We knew that we were going to fight, you know, you know, just a, a very a culture of low expectations. We were going to have issues with some of our unions. We were going to have issues with some some parts of the community. And we just knew there was going to be a fight. We were going to close schools. We we brought in charters. I mean, it was, we and we went in there just with that mentality. And and looking back, you know, uh, we, had, we frankly we have a lot of scars from it. Um, and we learned a lot. And I'll tell you, we learned a lot. We learned even more from our mistakes. Um, and then eventually we got it right, and we saw some amazing success over time. But it was a very, very tough battle, very, very mm-hmm. tough battle. So I took that when I went to Nevada, and in Nevada I decided to step back a bit and really, really, again, assess the community and try to engage the community in a more meaningful way, and, and especially engaging our internal community, which is our employees, our principals, our teachers. Um, and we saw you know, better, better success in terms of uh, you know, getting buy-in and actually starting to put in reforms in a quicker, at a quicker pace. Here, you know, I decided to you know, really take that accumulated set of learnings and really look at San Antonio. Like I said, I wanted to step back and just get a consensus across internally and, and, and externally our stakeholders to make sure that everybody was you know, comfortable in going in this, in this specific direction, which was uh, setting this very clear vision that you articulated, as well as having very clear metrics and these very aggressive goals. Because what we did in our goals is we put uh, benchmarks both at the na- that based on the nation on how the nation is doing with graduation rates, how children are doing in SAT and advanced placement exams, which is how we measure college preparedness. Um, so several metrics, both national and at the state level. 
and shared how we were doing and what our five-year goals were. And it's very aggressive. In many of our metrics, we want to double or triple our performance. And so, of course, you know, you have many individuals that say, oh, my God, that is so aggressive. That's unrealistic. But I say, well, let's, you know, let's at least have the conversation about whether this is the direction you want the district to go and really unifying everybody. And again, and for me, it was just, you know, it was lessons that I learned from my previous experience about how do you engage stakeholders? And and one of the things that, that I, you know, that was a blessing here in San Antonio is that they, actually they were ready for the change, especially externally. The stakeholders were ready. And so, again, I think timing timing sometimes can, can be, you know, can really work for you. And, and so far it's worked for us here in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. What what do you think is your your favorite or your most teaching failure of um, of any of your leadership experiences? So I, I would say that you know the biggest one. Um, we did a lot of great work in Northern Nevada and Washoe County, and um, you know graduation rates up went up significantly. College going rates went up. Uh, kids success on advanced placement exams and and SAT went up, and yet you know I. Um, you know, mid midway through my term there, um, I had a, a brand new election and brand new board members that came on, and it became a very it became an impossible situation there. And so for me, you know, one of the you know really big lessons learned there is the importance of uh, your board, your trustees, board elections, um, really understanding, also having a great relationship with your board. So you know, in this role. I spend a lot of time, you know, really helping our board members understand the, not only uh, the the changes that we need to make, but the reasons why. And many, and what I'm very fortunate is that our board members are very connected to their community, so they give me a great pulse of what they're seeing. And so, really understanding the importance of, you know, because I have a lot of colleagues who, you know, they'll come into situations where they have split boards and they have boards that, you know, again that are not getting along. And if they're and what I've learned, especially here in San Antonio, is that if your board is not united together with you, it just makes the work so much more difficult, if not impossible to accomplish. And one of the things that the community is really impressed with is how well our, our board and, and myself, how the board, the superintendent and the board, are, how well they're working together as a team. I mean, and we hear that constantly. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of work behind the scenes that, that's helping, but it's all seven of my trustees who are very different, different opinions, willing to, you know, challenge each other in private, uh, willing to push each other, but then in public be united. And I think, you know, that's one of my biggest lessons. And, and I wish in Northern Nevada, you know, I, I just, you know, didn't have the maturity in some cases to be able to manage that. And so for me, that was a, that was a great lesson learned. And frankly, you know, it's something that I continue to take forward. It's uh, it's incredible to hear someone uh, that has achieved what you have be so honest and reflective about all the learning and the growth that you've done along the way. Well, it's, I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Do you did when did you know that you wanted to be a superintendent? So you know it was interesting. I started my career in the private sector. I was very blessed. I grew up in poverty. Uh, my father worked two jobs all of, his, all of his life, never made more than $7 an hour. Mm-hmm. I was the first in my family to graduate from high school and go to college. And what I didn't realize at that time, I'm the oldest of 12, 10 still alive, was that every decision wow. I would make would affect my entire family. 
You know, when you're a kid and you're in high school, you're just trying to figure yourself out. You're trying to figure out who you are. And if you live in poverty, it's just, you know, it's just that much more complicated. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was blessed enough to be able to get, you know, do well in high school, go to college. Uh, I started working in the private sector, working for PricewaterhouseCoopers and Deloitte & Touche, working with some of the largest corporations in the in the world. And I really thought that, you know, that was my career. I really, I thought, you know, I've made it. I, uh, I have my, my career track. And I got a chance um, uh, to work in the Archdiocese of Chicago, where it was my first exposure to education. And, and that organization really showed me the power of, of being mission-driven, uh, really about your work. And then I got a chance, I got recruited to work for the Chicago Public Schools under our former secretary, Arnie Duncan. And there was probably the most difficult work that I've ever, you know, really had to face. I mean, very big challenges, large system. And about midway there, you know, I remember Arnie and I having a conversation. And Arnie told me, he said, you know, you really should think about what you want to do, how you want to expand in this in this realm in public education, and really how you're going to make an impact. <clears throat> and so he was the first one that got me thinking about being a superintendent. And after a lot of soul searching, I realized that this is what I wanted to do. This is what I wanted to dedicate my life was to make a difference with children who didn't have advocates who needed more support. Who has been your um, leadership role model? It sounds like Arnie Duncan has had a had a, a very powerful impact on you. Are there are there others? Yeah, you know. So I um, so when I was in working in Chicago, my, one of my biggest mentors was Arnie Duncan. Barbara Eason Watkins was uh, his deputy superintendent, and both of them were my mentors. She was she really taught me a lot of what I you know what I know about academics. I mean, she just she always uh, literacy and the and and strong principles were her two mantras. She said, if you have a strong literacy program. And you and you have strong principles in your buildings. You can do anything, mm-hmm. um, and that was just her belief, and she really ingrained that in me. Arnie was just a visionary. I mean, and he was he was courageous. He was he wasn't afraid to make tough decisions. Um, was you know was not afraid to deal with the politics of decisions. Mm-hmm. So two great mentors. But then I also got a chance to look at the work uh, of, that was going on in Boston with Tom Pezant, or the work that was going on in New York with Joe Klein, and so I got a chance to. Uh, and and because we were in Chicago, we we spoke, you know, we 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 really collaborated quite a bit with with these uh, districts. They were all, which were all in it for the long term. And what I appreciated was everybody had a ten year horizon. Mm-hmm. Nobody um, was nobody thought that the work could be done in a year. And they were all building systems. And so for me, you know, individuals like Joel and Tom and Arnie and then Barbara really had a profound impact on the way I saw this work that there's no quick fix uh, and you got to be committed uh, and you got to be committed to doing it for a long time. And so mm-hmm. I would say those were my key mentors. You know, when we think about leaders, we often think about people around us who are very good at getting things done, but systems thinking just seems to be a very, very different um, and unique type of leadership, if you were to boil down the lessons that you've learned and the things that you would want to pass on to other future systems thinkers or systems builders, are there two or three things that, that immediately come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I would say, first of all, you know, again, think long-term. Um, and, and it's a tricky balance because you're trying to create a sense of urgency. 
Mm-hmm. And you have to, and there's children involved. So you can't, you know, you can't wait forever. You can't tell children, hey, stay home for a couple of years. We're going to get the system right. fixed and then you can come back. Right. So it's a tricky balance. So first of all, appreciating that and being comfortable with that, that there's going to be some things that you have to increase the sense of urgency and some, frankly, some quick wins that, by the way, your staff really need because, you know, many of our staff, they've been here. Uh, they've tried different strategies and they haven't worked. And so in some mm-hmm. cases, they're demoralized. So really attacking that head on, while at the same time setting a very clear long-term vision and being very honest with the community about this is going to take time. We're building systems. There is no magic bullet. Being, being very transparent about the challenges, I, I think, are, are really key. And then the other is knowing that you can't do it alone. Uh, you have to partner with people both internally and externally. And, and what we say is we've got to partner with people that are smarter than us. So we will partner with all of the higher ed institutions in our community. We will partner with national uh, experts so that we can say, look, we, we're, we're not sure. And, and the way we approach the work is we're trying to change one of the most difficult challenges in our country, which is poverty. We're trying to cha- you know, challenge when you have achievement gaps or when you have children who have lived in neighborhoods that for generations have struggled uh, or for schools that have struggled for many, many years. And so these are difficult issues. So I think approaching the work in that way and being very honest and forthright about it, I have found has really worked for me. And knowing that you're going to stumble. And so, you know, I always tell individuals, you know, give us a chance to be smarter tomorrow than today. We're going to stumble. We're going to make mistakes. But know that our intentions never change. It's always to improve the lives of our children and to improve the system that we're trying to build. Mm-hmm. What when you when you think about the things that um, that guide your day? I want to kind of dive uh, delve into some of the the tips, the tricks, the tools, the, the 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 practices that you take into every day of waking up to lead all that is in front of you. Walk us through the first hours of your day, for, say, from the time that you wake up until about 10 a.m. Sure, sure. So, you know, um, so I'm, uh, one of the things that grounds me is my family. So I, I've been married now for almost 10 years. Congratulations. We have two children. Thank you. Uh, we have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, including my six-year-old who goes to kindergarten in our district. Oh, wow. uh, and my three-year-old will eventually be in preschool in our district. So everything is very personal for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it starts off really with just, you know, making sure that, um, you know, that, that, that both of my children, you know, when they wake up, they're usually the first to wake up because uh, they're early risers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really sets the tone for the morning for my family. So that part is very important. And then really as I start, you know, coming to work, I mean, just having a clear, in my mind already, knowing what, what we're trying to accomplish for the day um, and making sure that, it, you know, usually it's, it's we're trying to solve an issue. We're planning for the future. Uh, so it could be a combination of problem solving and planning. Um, and really, uh, you know, and one of the things that I always ask myself, you know, during the day is always making sure that, you know, how can we approach the work and so that we can continue to build trust? Uh, because, you know, if there's one theme, hopefully, that you've heard from everything I've said is we spend a lot of time building trust, building trust with the community, building trust with parents. So every day I wake up, 
I'm asking myself, how do we continue to build that? Because most of my meetings are continuing to meet with external stakeholders, individuals that want to get to know us. They want to get to know uh, what, the, what our work is about, what our challenges are, uh, individuals that want to partner with us, as well as, you know, meeting with staff to do problems, to, to just solve some very difficult problems. Mm-hmm. And so really, you know, just it's really approaching it from that way. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, you know, the days are very long. They can go, you know, 14 hours at times. And sometimes, sometimes they're a little bit more, more average and normal. And then the only other thing I would say is one of the things I've learned as a superintendent is you never know um, that morning when something can hit you from out of nowhere. Um, I've had a situation where we had a, a shooting at one of our schools in a previous district. And, you know, there's nothing that can prepare you for that. Um, so being ready also that anything could happen that day that could really change a complete day and, and, and that you have to be flexible for that. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you take care of yourself? Uh, just I can't imagine, you know, 14-hour days, even if they're only three days a week, plus, you know, two children under the, year, the ages of 10, uh, a family that you care about deeply, the world of responsibilities, uh, leading, leading the future, 90 campuses. What do you, what do, you do to maintain your sense of calm that I, that, that I feel even, even here through my headphones and microphone. Thank you. Um, so I would say number one is I, you know, I, I guess I'm very grounded. I'm very grounded just based on the background, my background of growing up poor, growing up like many, many of these children in our district. Uh, but what I do, you know, is any, any minute that I'm not at work, I'm with my family mm-hmm. and I'm very committed to my family. And, and because they're young, you know, and, we, and my wife and I married older and we had children older, um, I mean, they just keep you, you know, they keep you active, whether you like it or not is what I, what I realized. And we do a lot of walking, so we do a lot of hiking. You know, one of our favorite, we have several hobbies. So one is we, my children love libraries. They love books. So we're constantly exploring libraries. Uh, we also um, love, you know, parks. And so we, uh, we're always exploring different parks and we're, taking hikes and, and just walking. Uh, and that really helps to clear, you know, it helps me just think a bit and spend some quality time with my children. So I would say, you know, that's really the most, probably one of the most important things I do to keep me, to keep myself both healthy and active. And also, you know, it, it helps me be motivated for this work. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to your 23 year old self? You know, that's a great question. Um, I think if I could go back, I wish, um, I worried a lot because I didn't have money. Um, you know, my family grew up poor. Um, it, I always felt, it, uh, there was always a level of uncertainty that I just, you know, was always worried about. And I think if I could go back, I would say to myself, trust yourself, uh, trust your instincts. Um, I, you know, I credit my family and, you know, and my upbringing and so many adults that, you know, had imp- impacts on me, teachers and counselors. Um, that you know they 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 really empowered me to make good decisions and and be ethical and and, and to have integrity, and so I wish I could go back and just tell myself you know trust yourself you know don't don't be so worried, um, just continue on the path and just you know and trust your instincts. And for the young person that's listening to this podcast that knows that they want to be Pedro Martinez one day they want to they want to have, be in a position to have the amount of impact that that you can have that you're having on your district and they're trying to figure out how they go from either being a teacher or or someone just in college or grad school to 
to to realize the end or the the steps in the path that you have what what are the few things that you would recommend for them yeah i you know the first thing i would say is you know if if you want to make a difference in the world if you want to make an impact and make our society better regardless of what's happening right because there's so many crazy things going on right now with politics and so many different events um you know to just to really pursue that and, and be sincere about that. So if you're a teacher, you're already making the biggest impact you can make to those class, to that classroom. But think bigger. You know, how do you influence your peers? How do you influence your school? <clears throat> I really believe that leadership is something that um, is in you and is in every one of us if, if we're willing to tap into it. So my advice is really, really, you know, have that in mind of, you know, if I want to make an impact, Start thinking now of within your role, first of all, realize that you're already probably doing it, and then also how you can really go up to the next level and influence even more people. You know, one of the best lessons I learned in my career is that I don't have to be a leader over hundreds of people to have influence. Mm-hmm. I actually, you know, in most in, for the majority of my career, you know, I mostly influence people indirectly. And eventually, I just things people realize that and notice that, and then I, I was able to be successful. So... I would say, you know, just have a commitment and be determined and just follow that passion to make a difference. Superintendent, thank you for your time with us today. I just cannot tell you how appreciative I am of you sharing your time, your insight, your presence and calm nature with with all of us. It's incredibly inspiring. Well, it's, it's truly my honor. Thank you for having me. We look forward to talking with you again. Thank you. Like this interview? Follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the leaders table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing. 